2 Peter chapter 3 and verses 8 through 13. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some would count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Nick, and thank you to our worship team leading us today. Isn't that last song pretty? Not an easy song to play. Thanks, David, and the band for working on that and figuring that one out for us today. Well, I guess last week there were some chuckles in the, out there I didn't even realize when I said, come back next Sunday for the second coming. Um, I didn't realize that when I said it. Didn't even hear the chuckles, but later during the week the ministry staff said, did you hear everybody laugh? I said, no, I didn't, but I guess that was why. Well, as far as I know, that's not happening right now or today. I guess I think we would all say amen if it did, right? <laughs> in 2020 for sure. Um, but nevertheless, we get to talk about it today. We get to think about it today. We get to find hope in it today. Jesus' second coming. You know, one of the things I think we can be grateful for in 2020 is that it has been sort of, as we wrap it up, an apocalyptic kind of year. And what do I mean by that? Well, first, what I don't mean. What I don't mean is kind of the, the four-horse apocalyptic vision of the book of Revelation, I don't quite mean that, that we've got a slide for to kind of get your mind around that. Now, who knows? Christ's return might be close. It could be. But our task this morning is not to try and guess dates as we look at his second coming. You know, I think every generation tends to think that they will be the one generation in which Christ will return. And when apocalyptic type years come, that fervor kind of increases even, doesn't it? And, but that type of focus actually isn't really very, usually very helpful to the church. It's actually, it sometimes produced some of our worst, worst Christian theology books, and it makes us look gullible at best when we kind of give in to predictions of Christ's second coming, and sometimes hostile at worst when we only talk about the new world coming and seem to not pay any attention to this world, the here and now. Well, so how then is this year, if it's not that type of apocalypse we're necessarily talking about this morning, how has this year been apocalyptic in a good way? I was listening to a popular secular talk show host this past week, and I was surprised with the candor that he spoke about the sinfulness of this world. This is a secular person. Now, he didn't use that word sinfulness, but he said something along the lines of, wow, man, this year has shown me more than ever that something's really wrong with this world, he said. He said, I, I, just, I just don't mean the people. He said, I mean the whole 
world. His uh, reason, he went, he went on to say, Mother Nature must really be sick of us and is paying us back, is what he said, as a secularist. He was referencing all the political and social and medical upheaval that we've had in 2020. But you know what? He's right. He's right. Everyone has seen the brokenness of this world with fresh eyes in 2020. An apocalypse is something, it's, it's a revelation, it's a revealing it's an uncovering, it's a pulling back uh, of, of the curtain, you might say, to get a revelatory, revelatory look at something. And 2020 has shown us so much, hasn't it? It's been apocalyptic in that sense. And as Christians, you and I are realists, so it's been a blessing in some ways to be shown the current state of the world and the church and how desperate we really are as humanity for salvation. I mean, even some talk show guy saw it. And it shows that there is still a longing in our neighbors to see the world put right. Everyone knows that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Another thing we can be grateful for is that it has shown us that humanity and the church included is, is betting too much on this world, this first world, on the here and now the daily news cycle, or on the political cycle, or on the daily stock report, or on daily health even that we have, or don't have. We've put too much hope in the here and now. We've placed supersized hope on the temporal world. Now, I'm not saying that as Christians we're to live aloof, or, or um, you know, put our head in the sand, or ignorant with what's going on in the world, like some evangelicals have in the past. You know, as the thought was, well, who cares? Rapture's coming, it's all going to burn up anyway, so why do we even care what happens around us? No, no, no. That's not a biblical perspective. If anything, those who know that this is not their final home and that a second new heaven and earth is coming, those people will actually invest most in the here and now. Why? So that the people in the here and now on this earth and this home can get a foretaste, a revelation of what is coming. And so long for that other kingdom and the King Jesus. So that they'll see what they're missing out on by living self-centered, unrepentant lives. I think C.S. Lewis put it well. I think we've used this quote before. But here is, he said, If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next world. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at only earth and you get neither of them. We are to look to the next world. Aim at heaven. Consider Christ's second coming. You know, when I say we've placed too much hope in this temporal world, I, I mean that we've actually thought and we think too little of Christ's second coming. Not, not in the aspect of detailed dates that I said, but the theological weight and glory and hope that that's going to bring us this morning, I pray. And by thinking too little, we've been impacted and, and thrown off our course by what's happening in the day-to-day, -day, placing too much weight on the temporal. Well, so far in our Behold series, we've looked at Christ's first advent. Well, then we looked at his daily advent in our hearts, and now today we get to look at his second advent, his second coming. We're going to look at three reminders today that are going to help us wait, because we're waiting, aren't we? These reminders are going to help us wait as God intended us to wait for this future Advent. So hopefully you've got your outline there. 
in your Bible open to 2 Peter. Let's look at our first reminder. Here it is. We're going to behold or look at God's time. God's time and his patient fulfillment of his future advent. As Nick read this morning, we're looking from a short text from Peter's second letter, a letter in which he speaks of the final days and the final coming, the second coming of Christ, and he, he encourages Christians in this second letter to be ready for it, to be watching and waiting. You know, many in that day believed that Christ would return in their lifetime. And so Peter answers the question that he says scoffers, he calls them, will pose to the church. In chapter 3, verse 4, it says this, Where's the promise of his coming, these scoffers say to the Christians? Where is it? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Where's your Jesus? He said he would return. Where is he? Look at things. Things haven't changed. Nothing changes. Nothing ever will. Are you sure he's coming back? And we're not in the original lifetime of those who would have been around Jesus. We're thousands of years later. Thousands of years and multiple wars and pandemics and poverty and borders and nations coming and going, right? Where's your Jesus? The scoffers said. And we know that the Christians, they must have doubted that in their day, because Peter answers the question for them. He would have answered it unless it actually was something that was relevant to them. You know, we've been talking, remember our Genesis series, we've been talking a lot in our Genesis series about doubt. That we need to be honest and okay with doubt. That we need to be okay with wrestling with doubt and that the church should be a place where hard questions can be asked, right? Because we all still wrestle with doubt, and we will wrestle with doubt until Christ comes back. I am sure there are times when you have thought, is he really going to come back to earth? I mean, is he really going to keep that promise? It's been so long. Or haven't you wondered this year or years past, I can't believe he hasn't returned yet. I mean, how many times do we... We, we, we do this in the church. It's happening in 1984. Remember that? 1988. 1994, somebody predicted. 2000, 2012. Those are just some of the recent predictions that gain traction. Or situationally, look how bad things are getting. Why would he let it go on like this? What could he possibly be waiting for? I mean, if I was God, I would return when? Yesterday, right? Well, that's exactly what Peter wants to remind us of. You and I don't have the mind of God. Just because you and I can't think of a reason for Jesus' delay doesn't mean there can't be a good one. And verses 8 and 9 give us two reasons to battle this doubt. Let's look at them again. It's a short passage, so we'll read some of it again. But do not overlook this one fact, verse 8, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The first reason Peter gives us is God and time. Peter says, 
don't forget, don't overlook this fact that time is different to God. It's different to God than it is to us as, as finite creatures that only know time. A day or a thousand years, Peter says, are the same to him. I was thinking about going on road trips this week with uh, children in the car. Many of you have probably done that years past or doing it now or with grandkids. And how inevitably we hear on those road trips, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Over and over. Uh, children have an uh, undeveloped or you know, might almost say immature view of time. And yet we get that way with Christ's return too. Has he come yet? Has he come yet? Has he come yet? But all we know is time, isn't it? We were born into time, real space and time, you and I, each and every one of us, a date, an exact moment when we were born. But God created time, Peter's telling us. He's eternal. He's above time. We might phrase it that way. Have you ever tried to think about the fact that God has no beginning? It's one of those questions that you almost feel, you ever have those moments, you almost feel like you begin to understand it and you say, no, no, no. I mean, all I know is beginnings. Everything I know had a beginning. Everything you see right now in front of you had a beginning. Even these trees here, you know, the Christmas trees behind me, there was a time when they didn't exist. Everything we see has a beginning. And then you think, except God. And your brain kind of short circuits for a moment. You kind of almost felt like you got it, but then you're like, no, I can't even understand that. It's impossible for us to fully grasp this concept, but so important. God is above time. He's not bound by it. And yet, aren't we thankful that he acts in real time? He does. That's what Christmas is about. A real breaking into time by Jesus. That's what his second coming is about. A real breaking into time and space at an exact moment. But Jesus told his disciples at the ascension, even though he acts in real time, he told them, don't be concerned with exact dates and times. That's not for us to figure out. And here's why. Because God chooses to act more in time based not so much on exact dates and moments. He acts more in time based on uh, moral reasons or relational breakdowns or salvation goals that he has set rather than over specific dates on calendars. What do I mean by that? Remember back in Genesis 16, God tells Abram his people would be in slavery in Egypt. And he gives us some general idea of, you know, Genesis 16. He says, you know, you'll be in slavery in Egypt. You'll come back to the promised land. He didn't give a date. Here's what he said. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That was his way he was working in time. Not necessarily exact date or moment, but you'll come back when the iniquity of the Amorites is complete, when their sin is filled to whatever level God has decided before he brings out judgment upon them. So when will Christ come back? The, the Bible says when the gospel is preached in all the world. Not an exact date does God give us. He works more in time in the sense of moral or relational or, or salvation rather than here's the date, there's the date. God's time is different. It's just different. 
A day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. But here's the second reason that Peter gives us in these verses. It's God's character. He's patient. Verse 9 says he has a desire, a wish for repentance to take place. He's not slow, as some might say. Where is your Jesus? It's been 2,000 years. Does he really care about you that much to leave you here that long? He's not slow, the verse says, or lazy, or forgotten about us. No, his character, he desires, he wishes for lots of people to repent. With our human minds, if we were in God's place, it's kind of a, a sketchy hypothetical to walk on, but if we were, there's no way watching all the evil in the world we would ever have been this patient, right? Think of all the moments of history where you would have pulled the plug on this thing. Well, what would that have meant for the man or woman who gets saved today somewhere? What would that have meant to those even in our own congregation who've come to faith in the last couple of years? We've had some. Too bad. <laughs> we would have pulled the plug already on this thing. Do you see, it's God's character. It's part of his delaying that causes him to delay. He's, he's long-suffering is another word. He doesn't take pleasure in the punishment of the wicked, and he wishes all to repent. Then why is he delaying? His character. He's patient. It's incredible. As you read the Old Testament, as we're going through Genesis, you find over and over again, he is so long-suffering. His outbursts of wrath are not capricious like a toddler. He gives, he gives so much time for repentance, ample time. And then he always gives warning after warning, even before he usually comes to judge. He wishes all to repent. So when you're tempted to feel that he's slow or has abandoned us, or if marginalization and ridicule increases for the Christian, comfort yourself with this truth. He delays because he cares. That's why he's waiting. And he will return because he's promised it. And everyone and everything will be exposed at that moment, and it'll be worth all eternity to hear, for those of us who have followed Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. It's our first reminder this morning, God's time and patience are different than ours. Here's our second Peter wants us to see. He wants us to behold a biblical view of the sudden surprise ending of his You know, everyone speculates how history will end. <clears throat> People wonder, some of the questions, is there any purpose to it all? Is there any purpose to all this history? Is it just meaningless? Will things continue to get worse? Or will progress have its way and some inevitable utopia will come to fruition? Or does history just repeat itself over and over? Nations rise up and fall. Kings come and go. Peter wants us to look at history with a biblical worldview. That's what he's doing in this passage. Now, the Bible, per se, isn't a general history book. It contains a lot about history. It contains much of history. And when it speaks history, it speaks it truthfully. But the Bible's concerned with a, a certain history of a certain people group. It's the history of salvation. That's what the Bible is concerned with. From the garden to the patriarchs to the people of Israel, the story goes, to the coming of Christ, which is the center of history, 
and the story of salvation, and then the church after that, and then His second coming, all of this is a grand story of historical redemption, which God predestined His plan, the book of Acts says. It's God's calling out a people and redeeming them for uh, super history. Not just history, but, but super history that we get to be part of. Jesus' second coming. It'll be sudden, Peter says. Sudden and quick and certain. Like a, like a thief, verse 10 says, he will come. I can remember as a young teenager being home with uh, a friend of mine, we were young teenagers, maybe 13 or 14, at my house one night. And my parents and my siblings were all gone. And we had these windows on this one of my childhood homes, which they were terrible for a child. I don't know if they put the tint on the wrong side of the windows or maybe just the way they were made, but at nighttime, the windows became a mirror. So you couldn't see out of your house. It was a mirror, but you could see in. <laughs> they really was. They were kind of terrifying as a child. And I remember we didn't have a, a ton of curtains on uh, the windows. And one night that friend of mine uh, and I were in our little front TV room and we're just sitting there quietly and this window's right behind us. And I'm sitting there with my buddy and nobody else is in the house and all of a sudden I hear somebody try to open the window. I kind of froze, looked over at my buddy out of the corner of my eye because I knew I, if I turned around I couldn't see out but they could see in. And I looked back and, you know, of course I saw my own reflection. I, for a moment I thought, well maybe a bird hit a window or something at nighttime? Yeah, right. <laughs> That's what I thought, though. I was trying to rationalize it in my mind. And I kind of looked over at him again, and then about a minute later, someone just tried to furiously rip the window out. I mean, they were just pulling on as hard as they could. Well, of course, we jumped up, ran out, up my second story, hopped out my bedroom window onto my roof. Don't tell me why. That's just what we did. <laughs> I guess we thought, roof, you can go out, or I don't know. Who knows what we're thinking? But it happened so sudden that we jumped and fled the room. I don't think our feet hit the ground. We've kind of levitated out of the room. You see, Christ will come to surprise us as a thief. He will come that sudden with that much shock and disruption in this world. He will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away, the verse says. It will roar, the verse says. The heavenly bodies will burn up. The works done on earth will be exposed. He will come suddenly, but he will come. Like a thief will surprise this world. And as Peter writes, there will be no place to hide on his second coming. It'll come sudden. It'll come quick. And it will, as Peter uses that strong language of will, these things will accompany it when he does. So if it's going to be sudden, if it's certain to happen, how should we conduct ourselves today then? What does that mean practically for how we live then? If we're to think about this second coming, it's to give us that hope to live. We know it's not on our time, but it's sudden, it will happen sudden, and it will. How should we live? Let's look at our third promise today. Beholding our purposeful waiting and watching. You know, these last few verses contain, I would say, some of the greatest promises in the Bible, uh, the greatest hope in all the Bible. 
these last few verses here, 11 through, even down to 14, that everything that is sinful in this world will be purged out of the world. The great purging. Where Scripture says will be burnt out of the world. And for those who are Christ's, everlasting eternity on a new earth that is perfect and holy and good and righteous will be all that remains. That's what will be left after the great purge. This is the culmination of redemption history. This is where it's all going. This is where it's going to end. You know, Eastern view of the world's kind of got a circular view of time. Everything just kind of goes over and over and over, and maybe you come back to earth over and over and over again. A biblical worldview's got a linear view of time. There was a starting point. There was a middle point when Christ came. And there will be an end when he returns. History and time as we know it will end. It's the culmination. This is where everything is going. And in verse 11, Peter says, since this is what you're waiting for, this important day, and all these other things will be dissolved, this is, this is what all of history is waiting for. How should we live then? How should you live then? What should your life be like? Well, first, he says, we're to be looking for it. We're to be watching for it. The ESV says waiting for it, but it, be, it contains the idea, uh, the King James says looking. We're looking, we're waiting by looking, I guess you might say. I mean, thinking about it for a moment. We're to think about it. We're to talk about it. We're to let the reality of it live day and day in this temporal, temporal world. The reality of the second coming. To wait for it, to look for it. You know, Apocalyptic 2020 has revealed that we look too much at this world without looking to the next, I believe. You call it a myopic worldview. We only see what's right in front of us. When Peter's urging us and calling us and telling us, you must, that's the only way to live today properly in the here and now, is by looking to the kingdom to come. Or we live in the here and now with our eyes not on the next world, only here when we should live fully in the here and now, yes, knowing that it matters greatly, but it's only temporary. Our priorities, the things we love and our allegiances and where we invest our time and energy and money is shaped by what kingdom takes priority in your life. So if that's the case, if this is, we're waiting for this great day, the culmination of history, Christ's second coming, then really, what is one election in the grand scheme of things? What is one president in the grand scheme of things? What is one pandemic in the grand scheme of eternity? What is one moment of death when eternity awaits? I'm not trying to be dismissive, but not very much at all, actually, then. If we await eternity, and it's going to look radically different than the here and now, all of those things, of course they all matter and we live in real time and we're not to ignore them. I'm not being dismissive, but what I'm doing is trying to give us a perspective that Peter wants us to have on this earth and the earth to come. If you deeply live and trust, if this world is not the end, 
if you deeply live and trust that way, that this world is not the end, there's another world to come, you'll live differently. You'll live radically different lives, watching and waiting for the next. But if this is the only world you see, myopic worldview, even as a Christian, then you will frantically view every victory as ultimate and worth everything to get, or every defeat in life as totally devastating and worth everything to avoid. That's how we'll live if we don't live with the second world right in front of us. Every victory is worth everything to give up to get, and every defeat is totally life-shattering and worth everything to avoid. But that's not the world we live in. But if you live with your eyes on the next world, you'll live, as Rudyard Kipling said in the first lines of his poem, if you'll keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and even blaming it on you. Do you feel that way sometimes? Everybody's losing their mind and they're going to be blaming it on us, blaming it on you, blaming it on me. Things might look more and more that way. But if you live with your eyes on the world to come, you'll live with a ballast. That is like a stability, a confidence, not in yourself, as the Kipling poem goes on to say. You know, He goes on to say in his poem, you can live this way if you're a um, self-confident, mature man, is basically what he says. No, you'll live this way if you know you were so desperately needing saving that Christ had to come twice, not just once, but twice for you. You'll live with that ballast, that confidence, that security. So we watch, we wait, but not just on our haunches or sitting back or relaxing or in our lazy boy. No, we watch and we wait by purposely preparing for that great day of the second coming while we wait. And so what type of preparation is that? Let's close with that today. What type of preparation is that as we watch, we look, we anticipate, but we don't do it sitting back, we do it preparing? What type of preparation? Well, when we have big days in our life, we go through a lot of preparation, don't we? From childhood to adulthood, when you're a child, you, you know, you, you've got a play date set up with a friend and you know they're coming over, you might think of things you're going to do. You might get your toys ready. You might get your things out of the garage so you can play and prepare. You get ready. You prepare. High school, maybe you've got a big test coming or the SATs. They've got preparatory classes for those even. You prepare maybe hours of study and review. You prepare for that big day. When you go off to college, what do you do? You prepare, don't you? You buy all kinds of supplies for your home or your dorm room and clothes and books. You, you prepare, you get ready for that big day of launching out from your house out to college. But your wedding day, now more so than ever, hours of planning and decisions and dieting and all the stuff that goes in prepping and planning for that big day. How about having a baby? Classes and books and a thousand opinions that come your way and all these things you've got to do and cribs and, and clothes again and preparing for that big day. We even prepare for our death, don't we? Wills and trusts, and inheritances, and funeral arrangements. We prepare for these big days. So if those are important, 
and we put so much planning into those days. How much thoughtful planning and preparation should we put in now for the day of the Lord by comparison? How much? I mean, it should be no comparison to those days. Those days matter. They are important. But there is nothing like the day of the Lord. Nothing to prepare for such as that. Well, verse 13 says the new earth will be a righteous earth, a righteous place. If that's the case, if it's going to be a righteous place, then verse 11 says we ought to live lives in holiness and godliness. And verse 14 says purity and peaceful. If the world we will spend eternity in, and the one that's coming is going to be one of holiness and righteousness, what Peter's saying is then, Shouldn't we in the here and now, this short time we have, get ready for that world? Because that's when we're going to spend most of our time in. In this blip of time we have here, we prepare for vacation with more gusto sometimes than we give to our spiritual growth, don't we? Look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot, or blemish, and at peace. Diligently, he says. With, with, with hard work, tenacity, and commitment, and preparation. I mean, just think for a moment how much preparation and how much Jesus went through to make that day possible. The day of the Lord. His second coming. The creator of the earth became part of his creation. The king of all kings took the form of the servant. The ruler of heaven and earth left his throne room for a dirty stable and manger. The word of God gave up his rights and privileges and lived to serve, die as a sacrifice. So this Christmas, as we do look at Jesus' first coming, and we will and we should, Let us also not forget, people of Bethany, to diligently look to the next one, the world to come, by remembering these three promises that Peter gives us today. Here they were again. He's not come back yet because God's time and patient are different than ours. And yet it's guaranteed he will come back suddenly and surprisingly to wrap up history In the meantime, let's prepare. Let's prepare because it's a big day unlike any other we've had that's coming. Let's prepare with a purposeful diligence, growing and waiting and watching for the second coming while we share the gospel of the kingdom with those around us in community, sharing with others. They are ready for it. Apocalyptic 2020 has prepared them. They know the world's not right. They just need the answer. But we have it. That's what Advent's all about. We have it. You know it. You believe it. 2020's got the world ready. So let us wait as growing disciples in holiness and godliness so that when he returns and we really behold him face to face, you'll be ready. I'll be ready and we'll hear that. Well done. You waited and prepared. Behold.